Welcome to the first of two special episodes of Depolarize, where we are going to get election reactions, mostly from previous guests and a couple future guests. Now, these are just a bunch of individuals. Um, Most of them come from the left, because that's who I was able to get for these earlier episodes. Those are more the people in my circles. I wish I did have more people from the right. I am going to have a Trump voter for next week's episode, which will be similar to this one, the second of two. And another thing is that I'm not pushing back here very much on what people say. I'm mostly just trying to listen to a diversity of opinions and reactions. A few times I sort of make my thoughts known in that conversation. But this is a really hard time to have a conversation that spans both sides of the aisle. It's a weird moment. Trump supporters are like, what's all the fuss about? Our guy just won. He hasn't even had a chance to do anything yet. And there's some truth to that, right? There's some truth to that defense. Um, He has done nothing actionable yet, unless you consider appointing cabinet members actionable, which I'm going to talk about that in a second. There's a quote I read in The Atlantic that has also been requoted by a bunch of people in the last few days. And it says something like, the right took Trump seriously, but not literally. And the left took Trump literally, but not seriously. Think about that. That is pretty accurate. We on the left are afraid of the catastrophic damage he might do if he acts like he says he will act. And most of his supporters are like, he doesn't mean this stuff. But they do take him seriously as, a, as their voice in Washington. Now, this might be controversial, but this claim seems plainly obvious to me. That we can only say one thing about each candidate's voters. And the only thing we can say about a voter for a candidate is that, on balance, that person chose to vote for that candidate. They thought that, on balance, it was a better choice. We can't say that Trump voters are racist. We cannot say that Hillary voters are baby killers. We just can't say that. We can look at exit polls. We can figure out percentages of what people believed and what they said was important. We can figure out their race, their gender, their age, their religious identity. But there's only one piece of information that we can actually gather from the bare fact that they voted for Trump or Hillary. And that is what I just said. On balance, Trump is the better choice. On balance, Hillary is the better choice. Literally, we don't know anything for sure other than that. Get Here's two examples. You might want to say Trump voters are sexist because Trump said many sexist things and admitted to doing sexist things. But listen to this. Hillary wanted to repeal the Hyde Amendment. I voted for Hillary. I don't want to repeal the Hyde Amendment. But on balance... I voted for Hillary. I thought she was on balance a better candidate. Similarly, the same can be said for a Trump voter and his sexism. I got an email from an extended family member before the election saying, remember, we're not voting for a candidate. We're voting for the GOP platform. Now, you can disagree with that assessment of what a vote is, but you cannot say that the person who sent that email did not believe they were voting for a platform and not a candidate. And of course, what that means to them is on balance, this platform is better than the other platform. 
You just cannot say that that person is, by definition, a racist or a xenophobe. I know for a fact that that person voted because of abortion. They thought that that was their obligation as a pro-life voter. I disagree personally with their argument, but I cannot call them a racist or a xenophobe. I can't do it. The same applies to protesters. We cannot say of all protesters that they are sore losers. We cannot say of all protesters that they do not respect democracy or that they are entitled and have never been told no before. We can't say any of these things about them. People are protesting for multiple reasons. You would have to ask each individual why they're there and they could tell you and then you could know to the extent that they knew themselves well enough to say what they were doing it for. Now, there's some legitimate fear right now on the left. People are worried that Trump will do the things that he talked about. If he does, pretty massive inequalities and suppression are to come. I mean, if he sends a deportation force around neighborhoods, there are some real questions about human rights. But also, there is legitimate frustration on the right. Voters feel like they have not been listened to. They feel slighted and insulted. They feel grouped together with no respect to their individuality. Many of them, especially the voters who either switched parties, voted third party, or refrained from voting, they feel like their elected representatives have done very little in their interest for decades. This includes voters of all races, as is clear from the exit polling. Trump got 8% of African Americans. He got 26% of Latinos. He got a lot of people who voted for Obama twice in a row and then voted for him. That does not fit the tidy narrative of the sexist or racist Trump voter. It just doesn't. We have to look closer. We have to listen more closely. Now, a quick note about the news from today and yesterday. Trump has chosen Reince Priebus as his White House chief of staff, and he has chosen Steve Bannon as the White House chief strategist. I am not really concerned about Reince Priebus as chief of staff. I think if anybody should be frustrated about that, it is anti-establishment Trump supporters. Priebus is as establishment as they come. For myself, I'm, I'm grateful for a little bit of a moderating influence. Steve Bannon is a harder question. Um, he did run Breitbart News, and Breitbart News... I, I see as quite a danger. Uh, they use Jew as a derogatory word. They have a section on their website called Black Crime, where a reader can go and find all the black crime that the mainstream media is not reporting on to confirm their biases about how prone to crime black people are. You can look up more of Breitbart's reporting, but that's concerning. He's not the chief of staff, which is a legitimate office with legitimate powers. Technically, he is an advisor. He has the president's ear for as long as Trump keeps him there as chief strategist. I don't know what this means. For what it's worth, David Axelrod, former Obama aide, thinks that the bigger decision was Priebus as chief of staff. I don't know. I don't know what to believe. I will be on the lookout, though. I hope that you will be, too. 
I don't know if this is an emergency, as some people like Sean King are saying. I'm not sure. One final note on these interviews. There are varying audio quality levels through both episodes. That's because of just where I had to meet some people to interview them. And I did have a a problem with one of my microphones on one of the interviews, and I had to use my backup audio source. But it should be totally listenable and no problem. I will tell you with each interview which episode the guest is from so if you haven't listened to that episode you can go back and refresh or if you are interested in what they say you can go back and listen to a full interview with them here's the first one So I'm here with Chris Hoke and Niners Garcia. You might remember Chris from episode two about immigrants and his work up in Skagit County in Washington. And he mentioned Niners. I don't remember, Chris, if you mentioned him by name or not, but he was in that conversation. You guys are now business partners. And so I've got both of them joining me here today. So thank you guys both for being here. Thanks. And you guys are on a little book tour right now down in California together, and that's why uh, we're getting two for the price of one. So what I'd like to hear from each of you separately is what was your reaction the night of the election, and has anything changed in the in the last four or five days as you've kind of thought through it some more? Well, I guess starting with my, my response to the night of, I think... I was really aware of how different my demographic is as a uh, a white progressive person of privilege, even among those I serve, oftentimes those affected by immigration and incarceration as a jail chaplain and working on gang members and prisoners. That night, uh, you know, I was, it just felt like a sick joke. It felt like this cannot happen. Is this really happening? I was reading a lot of my Twitter feed of people who are, you know, journalists and and pastors, and just really, really sickened, really horrified. But as I started getting in touch and reaching out to folks that I know that are on the streets or that are homies, it was really scattered. It was really different. What really hit home is is with a guy who's um, that Niners connected me to who's still in a maximum security prison who I just visited the week before who's doing a lot of organizing among Mexican-American prisoners and doing Mesoamerican culture studies and organizing and working with uh, with Black Lives Matter and the Black Prisoners Caucus. And I was saying, how are you doing with this election? And they're like, I don't know. Like, they're just kind of indifferent. And it, and it caught my attention. Like, really, huh. this, this shit isn't going to change anything for us, really. That I work with a lot of people who are so underground, so under the system, that it doesn't really matter who's at the helm way up in the in the towers they're already disenfranchised and so there wasn't a whole lot of hope that things could be really great or reformed nor is there a lot of despair that there was just kind of indifference among the people i serve who've never really thought that either side was for them so that's really moved me to, from being in despair that to having more of a uh, a disenfranchised mindset that's interesting because you could imagine a lot of those people like if we've had a black president for eight years and I'm still not in the system, like what's going to change? I mean, you can really sort of understand that viewpoint, right? Yeah. Thoughts like that. Neeners, what about you? Um, I, I remember my wife telling me about it and stuff because I really don't pay a lot of attention to because I was just like, man, this just seems like a joke. And 
like 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 what Chris was saying, you know, like I'm I really don't run off of politics as much, you know, we're 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 kinda working with people that are in the underground so my mentality stays down there with them like how do I get these guys out of the gutter? And so um when I when she told me I was just like, Man, nah, you 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 messing around. Are you, this is this isn't real. And cause I really everybody like everybody that I talked to really thought Hillary had this in the bag. Like she was already ready to get the sh- the the curtains for the White House and all these things. Like she was ready, and this happened. And it's like yo, like it just really it made me think of so many things. That that night, my mom, who was deported in Mexico, who was gonna file for her papers to get come back after ten years to the United States, and was gonna get it, was hoping to get it, which we thought she would get it, cause we're figuring it'd be fine. Call me scared, telling me that she's gonna probably have to wait another four years till another president comes on and we'll sign off on her coming back. And it's just like I haven't seen my mom in about ten, eight, eight to ten years and stuff. And it's just like, man, this, this is, this is hard. This is, this is really hitting at home now. It really sunk into me, like how, how bad and how, how big of an effect it's gonna have on, on not just our economy and our, our people, but like my life, my family, my kids' life. My son who was born two days ago. Who probably won't see his grandma till he's older? It's crazy, man. Well, that's something that we're gonna keep up with you about, and uh, hopefully, you and Chris can keep us up to date on that process. And hopefully, that's not true. Hopefully, she does get up here. Um, but I cannot even—I literally cannot imagine having anything that close to home as a result of this election. And so, thanks for sharing that. Neeners, you were talking to Chris earlier about how this sort of culture of negativity towards Mexicans, distrust towards Mexicans, in your mind, feeds directly into the gang culture. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I was. Uh, I remember um, talking with like everybody's so concerned about what's going to happen in the White House, what what new laws are going to change, and all these things. And I remember um, hearing a lot of the homies like just seeing the, how how these guys just the racism that's just rising up that they given like like this this whole election just gave people the opportunity to to finally come out and call us names that we, sh- we haven't been called a, a wetback or a spick since i was a kid you know and, and so this is stuff that just triggering inside guys that are just giving up hope in life and just being like fuck the free world fuck this place Let's do this. This this just like retaliation, violence, and in 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 any gang member's life, you know, we always. I remember becoming a gang member was because I had no hope, and to know that about half of the population in our county is Mexicans, they're gonna lose all hope in in, in anything. In a lot of a lot of these these new, with these new changes coming on, you know. Yeah, and that's that's what I'm seeing. Dan is is not just the policies, but the culture. And, and the culture shift already happened. He, he, United States needs the, the Congress's support to pass this culture shift that's happened. I've seen that in the in his winning, there's already a kind of like an endorsement that this he got away with murder, so to say. Like he got away with such a culture of hostility and hatred. And for people to see, like, wow, people like this. A lot of the Mexican American friends that I have, like like Nina Sassain, have a sense that oh, I do live in a country that doesn't want me that hates me, that thinks I'm trash, that thinks you can, you can talk about us that way. And that's what builds a whole culture of, of rage, of despair, of resentment. Uh, that is, yeah, the heart, the heart of gang violence is I, I am unwanted. So how do we defend ourselves against where 
there's a hostility. And the universe is even saying there's like a low-level PTSD that's already setting in among guys. What, amongst, did, you, what did you mean by that? Yeah, amongst amongst children. You know, the other day, uh, uh, or actually this morning, uh, Chris was just telling me uh, about uh, one of the guys, Alex, who had given him a call, a little, little youngster, little, he's a teenager, and... Uh, just think of the stuff that he's going through to, to know that any given minute, if he goes outside, either the Border Patrol is going to be there or another rival gang member is going to show up or just things like that. It's just, it just inside, you're already starting to get paranoid thinking of you're going to lose your family. Like, you got to think a lot of the, a lot of these migrant families or, or Mexicans out here have children that were born here, but they weren't. Like, my mom right. was, you know, she was born in Mexico and I was born, and I was born over here. So it's like... Now I can't see my mom, and that that's stuff that's going to build up inside them at such a young age. That's it's going to be horrific. It's going to it's going to scare the shit out of people. A lot of people who voted for Trump will listen to this and they'll say, "Look, I I understand your guys's fear. I totally don't." They'll think, you know, I totally don't think Mexicans are rapists. I I don't have any ill will towards Mexican Americans. Plenty of people voted for him because in their own mind, you know, abortion was the biggest issue on the ballot as it always is, and they did what they thought they needed to do to protect the unborn, for instance. For someone listening who has no internal conflict about whether or not they can respect Mexican Americans, for someone listening who voted for Trump, and who fully respects Mexican-Americans, what would you say to them going forward? Okay, your guy won. Now here's what we need from you. Like, what is that? Well, before getting to what we need from you, like, I th you said something that, that struck a note with me a second ago. You said, well, if abortion is our issue, we did what we needed to do to protect what we want to protect. For me, that is gangbanging. That's the central logic of those who are in gangs. That's the central mm. phrase amongst guys that I've worked with when they're kind of trying to give, they're kind of softening or minimizing the drive-bys or the fights they've gotten in and say, well, you know, Chris, you, you do what you got to do. And it was out of their sense of protecting their neighborhood or their personal safety. And so I guess I would just invite people, oftentimes evangelicals, you know, I know that 81% of white evangelicals uh, voted for Trump, that you can have that attitude, but just realize that's the same attitude of gang violence of you do what you got to do, we, you, you minimize and justify great hostility and violence to protect the one thing you want to protect. I would just want to hold up a mirror to see those similarities. Wow. If, if a lot of people still did vote him in from the Christian side because of abortion, that's just an old, older question, uh, and it, it's not new for this election. But for me, the, the, the question is always boiled down to, I think that's beautiful to want to defend unborn life. But it, yeah. it, it smacks of cynicism and hypocrisy if someone is wanting to, in the name of defending unborn life, denigrate life in the form of uh, immigrants, prisoners, the poor, uh, the very people that, that God tells us to defend. And so it's hard for me to hear, to, for, to see denigrating the born, the living, in the name of the unborn. For me, that it's not holy. Well, I think that obviously if they thought that you were right about that, you know what I mean? Like if they shared your perspective that they were truly sacrificing the born for the unborn, then they would not hold the views that they hold from, from where you guys. So, so there's a lot of work to be done. I think personally in terms of like finding a common language, 
so we can have those conversations of, okay, you voted for Trump because of abortion. How many living lives, you know, could be, could be ruined for the sake of these potential lives or what is, you know, where can we agree injustices are being done for living people? Does your pro-life ethic extend to the death penalty? Right. Does it extend to people who have been in jail for 10 years for marijuana possession? Yep. Does it extend to public school funding? You know, yada, yada. We can have those conversations right. from where you guys are coming from. What is, what's your aspect of that conversation given your experience and your knowledge, where can you guys push back on people of faith or conservative voters? Where can you sort of, how can you tug them in the right direction? Well, for me, and I'll pass this to you in just a second, Nini, is, um, is, yeah, as we, I primarily work with prisoners and, and of that subset gang members who are seen as the worst of the worst, that if, if, if I'm dealing with the faith community that really wants to talk about the sacredness of human life, oftentimes the unsaid line they draw is they're sacred and as soon as they're born they're no longer sacred as soon as they're just poor and of color we can denigrate them but specifically prisoners that in in my book wanted that's the central image i really came upon of prisons as human trash bins and in treating unwanted human beings whom god wants very much that treating human beings as unwanted and throwing them in huge landfills uh, across rural zones of, of, of prisons and keeping them in the underworld that I would want to build on people's belief like, okay, you say human life is sacred. Let's talk about the sacredness of human life and these people who are rotting in human dumpsters and how we can see them as precious and dig out and recover and resurrect human lives that are still precious with their tattoos and felony records. They're as precious as that fetus. Let's protect them all. So basically just call them on that value and let's say, let's get to work. Yeah. What about you, Niners? If you're talking to an imaginary Trump voter or conservative Christian who leans that way, like what, what's at the deepest part of you that you want to say to them to, to try and make them understand where you're coming from? <laughs> it's crazy because um, I actually spoke at a, at, a, at a spot where there's a bunch of Trump support, all Trump supporters. And um, I also have a, a good, a good uh, uh, friend who, who who considers herself calls herself like a mother to me is a Trump supporter. I've held some really good conversations with them and I've told them the, my point of view on stuff and I've always thought about like because every time it comes back to them they always talk about this they're going to bring the jobs they're going to do this work and, this, and a lot of the times I'm always const- I constantly remind like who does the work like who's going to if there's jobs already as is if you got immigrants who are coming out here to work if can, and, and can find jobs and work because supposedly they're taking all the jobs how, how are you going to get rid of these guys and have people that already have papers documented have socials think, how are they going to work and it's and it's just constantly comes back to to that so I, I haven't really met up with anybody who's who's specifically like tried to downplay or down talk on the Hispanics or, or the Mexicans or the rape or the violence but if I could I would just just like like anything else you know I would, I'd just try to shoot it to them the same way I, I would when I spoke to those folks and I was just allowing them to hear my side of the story me coming as a as an immigrant as a migrant son a migrant son and, and seeing my family being gone like like the pains and sufferings that I've gone through and stuff and and all the stuff that's rising up in a valley that's all kind of Trump supporters and and it's just like this is the stuff that we're gonna have to deal with and 
we talk about loving one another, but we man, half of us can't even can't even really tell the say what's really on our hearts. You know, it, it's 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 complicating. Yeah, I have one last question for you, which is: Is there anything about this that brings you hope? Is there any silver lining? Or is there any sort of like long-term scenario that you think this could end up being a net positive? And it's okay if you don't. Honestly, 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 I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm here with Chris. We're in Berkeley and I'm hearing people and I'm watching this, this diverse little town. Like, and the stories that Chris tells me, the stories that they say of the people, that's the protests they do. And what comes to me is unity. I think a lot of people are going to start uniting a lot better. We're going to see a lot, a lot. We might, I hope, I, I pray that we'll see a lot more people seeing eye to eye, common level. People finally realizing like this is really happening in our country. It's not happening in the ghettos and the hoods and in the projects and the slums. It's happening on our block, literally, like in the upper class, middle class. Like, And I hope that they could just see it. I hope that unity comes out of this, man. Yeah, one of the the, the guy I, I said at the very beginning who I visited in a maximum security prison who used to uh, be a, a celly and a friend of, of Niner's and the, who's a leader of some of these um, Spanish, uh, I mean, uh, Mesoamerican culture uh, classes in prison. He told me when I visited him, even a week before the election, he said what really woke up a lot of the Mexican-Americans in prison to not just be thinking about organizing around gang violence and fighting other Mexican-Americans were blood, red rag or blue rag, but starting to think about gang organizing around helping guys get educated and go to college and get back into their communities and be strong, powerful voices to change things out there. And what spurred a lot of his motivation last year and a half, he said, was this Trump clown. He's like really seeing this guy out there talking like this and then seeing what's going on in the news with Black Lives Matter and seeing these black guys who are normally like Mexicans and blacks, they fight each other in prison. But he's like seeing these guys just get shot down by cops like, wait a minute, that's what's been happening to us. And Mm. so hearing a real shift in his mind of when things get, you know, Martin Luther King talked about getting the lion to bear its claws, you know, by by their protests in the South, like really wanting the hidden violence to come out or the hidden hatred to come out, I think as the lion's coming out, the, the claws are coming out of the lion, at least on the cultural hatred, that that's causing Mexicans and Mexicans to unite in prison or on the streets and with Black Lives Matter and for people who normally are all fighting each other to come together and say, no, we have a shared experience of marginalization and we need to work together. If this is what it takes to see Donald Trump elected president for everyone to start working together along the margins, that gives me a lot of hope. Next up is a calmer and less frightened take uh, from Neil DeGrade. You might remember him from episode seven on third parties. He was our libertarian friend. So here is Neil giving his reaction to the election results. Neil, you were never going to vote for Trump or Hillary. So you had basically decided to let everyone else decide who would win. I assume you're still confident in that decision of yours? Uh, still confident in, in not voting for Hillary or Trump? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, I am. Uh, I mean, the well, you know, a lot of it has to do with Electoral College. I do not live in a state where it even mattered. My vote is more of a statement in this 
place, especially if I'm not voting for Trump. But in Kentucky, it was overwhelmingly a Trump state. Um, not um, not our county, but uh, the rest of the state was. So um, I, I kind of had the luxury where I didn't, you know, I, I felt like I, I, w- I was free to vote for a third party and make more of a statement um, and didn't need to get out and vote either for Hillary or for Trump. And I didn't want to vote for either. So, yeah, I, I was just I, I had that this expectation that I, I didn't even watch the election and everything go down the night before. I was just going to wake up and be surprised like it was Christmas, knowing that it was going to be a gift I didn't want. I was going to get coal or I was going to get, you know, uh, sticks in my stocking. And um, I was actually shocked it was Trump, like from, from the polls and everything leading up to it. I thought for sure uh, it was going to be Clinton. And I just had to deal with that, you know, sort of shock that, oh, my gosh, like this surreal world of the Donald Trump, the reality star in my world is now president. And what are the ramifications of that? So what do you think the ramifications are? Well, you know, I I got more optimistic over the last few days than where I started. I was concerned right away because I felt like. Donald Trump has been overcharacterized as a racist. I mean, he says things that I would never say, but I think there's a big difference in saying, you know, when he says we, you know, I believe illegal aliens are criminals versus I hate Mexicans is which how it's presented in the media. So what I was afraid of is as someone who scanned both sides, like I, I would tune into Rush Limbaugh once in a while and I'll listen to Bill Maher and I'll listen to. Um, MSNBC. I kind of scanned everything, and I was concerned for the people that only got their 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 news from television and uh, you know from cable networks and from only one side because the way Donald Trump was characterized was scarier than he really was. Um, I think right now, like the people are too quick to jump on the racist button to call people racist. I think that should be equally as bad as being a racist. Um, I don't think, I don't think Donald Trump is the best person ever. I don't really admire his character. I think he's been mischaracterized as monstrously racist. I think that really when he's talking about, he, he, there's a, there's a fear he has of illegal aliens and there's a fear he has of, um, you know, like the Syrian refugees and whatnot, whether it's rational or not, I can't speak to that. Um, but I, he doesn't strike me as a person that if he was actually face to face with a Mexican, with a Muslim, that he was going to not listen to them at a table. Um, I mean, we can see, for example, just in his, how he talked about President Obama, and then suddenly he's face to face with Obama, and he's being very civil, and he's being very grown up. Um, so, uh, you know, that's uh, what I'm afraid of is just that overreaction before he's even stepped into the office, before we've given him a chance, even though I didn't want to give him a chance in the first place. Uh, the country just overreacting because they've been force fed only one side of the story. Um, that's my concern right now. Optimistically, I, I'm I'm really hopeful that. President Trump will be different than candidate Trump. Um, and I'm seeing signs of that. And so I'm kind of hanging on to that little bit of hope as of right now. And like when I pray, I pray that same thing, that this is going to be a guy who listens. This is going to be a guy who thinks through, uh, that he gets good advisors and he, and he listens to him. And that in the end, you know, we really end up with the best case scenario of a bad situation as opposed to my the picture I could draw in my head of what a bad situation would really look like. What are the actual pieces of evidence that you think he is softening? 
Oh, yeah. Uh, well, it actually didn't start with him. It started with Hillary's concession speech, which I thought was was fantastic. I mean, for as disappointed as she was and as shocked as she was, the composer she sh- composure she showed in her speech and the graciousness I thought was excellent. And then o- the President Obama, um, you know, his opening openness to like, hey, this is the president-elect. Uh, he was really chill and really cool about it. And I felt like Trump responded back to both of them the same way. Um, that gave me cause for optimism. Now, well, I lose my optimism if I ever check in on his on his Twitter. I think if I was around Trump, the first thing I would get people to, to – I, I would try to get him to stop doing is using Twitter at all. Um, he's old Trump on Twitter, and he's new Trump you know, um, face-to-face. A couple other things that gave me cause for optimism um, were Netanyahu, uh, Prime Minister of UK um, – you know, uh, Vladimir Putin, they were all excited about, they expressed enthusiasm about working with him on foreign relations and that, like, you know, that Trump said it in one of his debates. He's like, it wouldn't be so bad if we got along well with Russia. Um, and I don't think, you know, politically, we don't, I don't think there's a point in getting along with Russia if Russia's going to behave badly, but maybe there's some grounds for some compromise between the two of them. So foreign policy wise, I was happy to see that, yeah, there were people in the world that were actually, like, oh, you know, we might actually be able to work with this guy. That was encouraging for me. Um, also, there's a side of Donald Trump that I think he wants to be well-liked and respected. When he doesn't get it, he acts out. But I think that he's going to be doing – he's done some things already that are more respectable in how he spoke. And he got really good feedback on that from people. So I'm hoping, you know, he really wants to appeal to that side of his, you know, kind of dichotomous personality is that – he wants to be well liked and might be more of a compromise and less rash person than he ran as a candidate. There are a lot of things I'd like to push back on that you just said, but this is not the episode for that. I am just getting my guests' reactions. Yeah. I will present one other piece of evidence. He did say today that he might be open to reforming Obamacare or leaving certain parts of it intact. And yes. I think that that was, has also been perceived as a bit of a sigh of relief and an olive branch to the left. He is drinking from a fire hose of information now. He was running on his impressions of America. He's going to get the actual download of what's going on behind the scenes. You know, all of the secrets, all of the, um, you know, high clearance, you know, security clearance information. Um, I'm, I'm, interested i think his policies are going to change once he gets the real picture of what a president gets to see and know um so that uh, i think that would be my main cause of optimism and then like when you hear about it you know with health care and whatnot is that he is going to back down i think on some of his campaign promises which people who voted for him are going to like but I, i wasn't necessarily a fan of all of his policy choices there so i'm really hoping got my fingers crossed he's going to back down on some of these things especially the authoritarian stuff you mentioned and you talked about this a lot on your episode when you defined the role of government from your libertarian point of view as mm-hmm. government stops bullies and it helps the disabled how confident are you that bullies will be stopped and disabled protected in the sort of larger economic or metaphorical sense under Trump? Well, um, not very confident, honestly. Um, yet, I mean, I'm hopeful 
Uh, but I'm not at all confident that he's going to that he would run run it in the capacity that he himself will be a bully. And he, he, I think he'll bully some of the companies like we've heard about, like with the car companies that are taking plants out of this country. He's gonna, he, he's threatened to drop a huge tax on them. So, uh, one of the, my concerns with the Republicans is that, like, I mean, in general, is that there is this idea that like every person is created equal in their ability to achieve in life, and I don't think. I think all men are created equal in value, but not all people are created equal in talent and opportunity. So when I say government is, you know, needs to stop the bullies and needs to protect the handicapped, um, you know, there's a line that people would people might agree with me on that, but they're going to take this line and they're going to push it around. Like they're going to some people would make something bullying that I would never even see as aggression, and then other people are going to make someone handicapped who I might believe or you might believe is fully capable of actually applying themselves and getting out there and doing work. Sure. Because if that's true, the if if government needs to stop bullies and help the handicapped, the inverse, you know, is also equally bad. They can't let bullies get away with it with bullying and also they can't um let people pretend to be handicapped who aren't so uh donald trump uh, i'm I'm concerned the way he talks that he doesn't respect the fact that some people literally there's no chance for them if somebody somebody doesn't help as a libertarian i would love to see charity step up and do that i would love to see charitable work do it but i think there is cause and there is examples and cases across the board where the government could draw a clear line and decide these people absolutely need our support because one of the things we didn't talk about last time is that there's i believe society really needs interdependence we really need cause to be good to each other otherwise no one will help us uh one of my problems with the government overly propping people up um is that you don't have to be a good person to to survive. You know, if you lose your job, if you, um, you know, there's lots of things you could do wrong. If you don't apply yourself, you might fall into that situation where you actually qualify for government aid when all along you really haven't deserved it. You haven't been good to other people around you. You haven't applied yourself. You haven't been, um, you haven't been a good neighbor. On the other hand, I'm afraid with Donald Trump that he may not, you know, like there's a certain type of bully he might let get away with it. So, I mean, I'm in a wait and see situation as a libertarian. Uh, I think that there, the, our world is far too comfortable with people, you know, and, and, and expecting another side of the coin to be controlled by one side. Uh, for example, if you're a Democrat and you're watching Obama write all these executive orders and you didn't put up a stink – you should have put up a stink because guess who's going to write a lot of executive orders now? And guess who's going to cross out all those ones you liked? Trump's going to come in and do that because we've allowed the president to get away with that. And as a libertarian, it, it makes our point exactly that that office shouldn't have so much power, that our government shouldn't have so much power because then we're stuck in situations where the coin flip. Now you've got a Republican Congress. You've got a Republican Senate. You've got a Republican uh, president. And because – you didn't stop your guy from abusing power. Now you've got to deal with the flip of the switch, and now their guy is in position to do power. So it, this is a great example of why, you know, I think this election says a lot about why there people should be more libertarian and really view government as something that should have a lot less power and control over your life. Because 
in reality, if government was the size a libertarian would want and is asking for, Trump could take over and you could wake up the next day and it's not a big deal because government really can't do that much on a federal level to ruin your life in Seattle or in Louisville or yeah. um, I think that will be a really interesting conversation to have going forward and that is something that the left is really going to have to reckon with particularly in the way that we have kind of given Obama a pass on executive orders now of course he had a congress who vowed to stop him at every turn and so that's a difficult situation, but it doesn't change the precedent that that sets for President Trump. Um, right. Going back to the Libertarian Party and Johnson, are you happy with how Johnson performed overall? No, no, I am not. I, I'm, I give him a high five for putting himself out there. Um, I, the media did not help him at all. I mean, he got almost no help. He got plenty of help from the internet. If he participated in the debates, if he was allowed to, at one point he was polling at 11%, I think it would have been a fair deal to put him in the debates, and I think we could have, he really could have stirred things up and then and forced the discussion to be more about policy. Uh, I think the third party would have done that as opposed to so much talk of personality and character. and Because it seemed like this was, of all my elections I've seen in my lifetime, this is the least policy-oriented election overall, like as far as what was discussed. I mean, Trump had some pretty radical policies he put out there that got a little bit of discussion. But in the end, it just it was between the salacious stuff and the criminal stuff is all we talked about. I felt like if Johnson, if Johnson performed a little better and a little stronger and he was a little bit clearer of, of communicator, we would have had a situation where he could have been in the debates and forced more of a policy discussion. Maybe not one. I'm kind of glad that the libertarians, though, the movement seems to be growing because you had someone as weak as Johnson gets, get enough dialogue going and enough talk about it. You know, I think that that did something good for it. I don't think he was the ideal libertarian candidate because, again, it's very he'll he jumps over the non-aggression principle in a lot of situations, and he doesn't necessarily help people who don't understand libertarianism have a better definition of libertarianism. So uh, that's why he was disappointing to me in that sense. But at the same time, I I wish he would have won. I thought he he had was a much better candidate, and he was the right guy for America of the people that were on the ballot in all fifty states. And I'm, you know, I'm not disappointed in the sense where I feel like he failed me in any capacity. Um, it just didn't meet my expectations. What are you most afraid of with a Trump presidency? Yeah, um, right now, I'm afraid of the people in the country right now um, not taking a deep breath, not stepping back. And being like, you know what? He hasn't enacted a single policy yet. I know he's said all these things. There's been no human right violations as of yet. Let's chill. Let's wait and see. And then let's protest with purpose if he does something bad. I mean, right now, if I'm a Democrat, I'm protesting the DNC because they handed it to Hillary. I mean, Bernie had the momentum uh, as an outsider who wouldn't, who is not Democrat or Republican. I think Bernie would have whipped Trump in debates. I think he would have given him the old man smackdown and the no nonsense smackdown. Um, Bernie doesn't have the controversial side um, morally. He's always stood by what he said. He's always been the same guy since he's been in politics. And I think, I think the Democrats 
screwed themselves over. And if there was anything to protest right now it's, uh, to, on the losing side, I would protest to make sure that didn't happen again. I, I'm scared less of Trump, though, at the same time because of people's willingness, like the left's willingness to get out there and protest something that they feel is unjust. I just hope they save their energy and don't become jaundiced and that if he really honestly tries something or is trying to you know, circumvent the will of the American people that people would protest. Um, so my fear is that people are protesting for the wrong reasons right now. It's more of a sore loser protest because he hasn't actually done anything yet and that they save their energy and wait for moments where, okay, there is something on the table that is about to happen or has happened that we need to get out and out to the streets, streets on. If these protests continue longer, sort of like the Occupy ones did, I'm definitely going to have some people on to represent that viewpoint Um, for myself. And and I think we should say like protest is speech. It's protected under the constitution. And so we need to, of course, respect that for myself. I am saving up my energy and my sort of my sick leave (laughs) days, which I, I work for myself. So I don't technically have those, but I'm basically, I'm banking I'm putting that in the bank for when there is something actionable. Well, that's wise. I mean, what you're doing right there, I would uh, to, I would say to any level-headed person who's frustrated is, yeah, save your energy for when you're going to need it. Save your time off work for when you're going to need it. If you will, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, sure. I, I mean, most of the time people do what they've always done. Trump has said some stuff. But if you're a Democrat, uh, I would take a little – consolation in the idea that he's pretty much been a democrat most of his life and uh he's been he's been a supporter of clinton and other people like that and i and i would i would wait to see if you're going to see more of that guy it might you might people might be protesting over nothing right now. i'm really interested in that but that doesn't really address the tenor of the conversation that he set regarding refugees, regarding illegal immigrants, regarding women, regarding the African-American community. So I think that if protesters right now are just trying to show support to those groups, then I think that's amazing and excellent. I think it is probably a little confusing right now because it looks like they're protesting the result of an election, of a free election. And that, that seems more problematic. Like, that's what we were worried about Trump supporters doing if Hillary had won. So that I'm I'm interested to see if the protesters can clarify that message yeah. because the former feels great to me and the latter feels to me problematic. Right. Uh, well, again, I think where you're coming from, like, I mean, we obviously need to respect people's right to do these things and to, you know, but they, I think I would just, if any individual, any friend of mine, I would tell them, you know, I see people eventing on Facebook and it's like, guys, hold your horses, wait for this. Like you're going to, you're, you're going to, everybody's going to unfollow you before you could even say anything that's worth hearing. That is a really interesting way of thinking about it. That's an interesting, there's so much barking. It's such a loud noise that people aren't, it's, they're going to get tuned out. And at the same time, they're going to get, people are going to get tired of being frustrated and they're going to get jaundice and they're going to be, you know, um, you know, they're going to be burnt out on it and they're going to disengage. 
And when their voice could make a difference, it's they're not going to have it. So uh, this is my concern. I think people can protest all they want, but I mean, I if I would save it. I, if I could tell anybody, save it for something clear. Save it for something like outside of I don't like this guy. He's still not president yet. He hasn't done a thing yet. Save it for when he does something and then go for it. Um, because otherwise you're just going to be a noise that everybody else turn, tunes out and the country's going to get more polarized. Call me bleeding heart, but one thing I wanted to do for this reactions episode was get someone from the LGBTQ community. So this is Julie Rogers. She is going to be joining us for a full length episode in the next couple months. But I wanted to get her quick take on the election. So my name is Julie Rogers and I write and speak about LGBT issues within the Christian church. Um, I've done that in the past in more conservative communities. I was on staff at Wheaton College, so more evangelical communities. Uh, and now I'm, I'm speaking a little bit more broadly, uh, just helping sort of with the progressive Christian movement to, to call Christians to be more inclusive of LGBT people. So that puts you in a kind of a unique place then as you react to this election. I'm curious what your reaction was like, what was your reaction on Tuesday night? And then now it's Saturday, a few days have passed in what way has it changed since then? Hmm. Well, I'm in all the stages of grief. I think Uh, I have been for most of the week. My main angst, I guess, and anxiety and concern is about the 81% of white evangelicals who voted for Trump. I'm really concerned for my friends of color, people of color, Muslims, um, immigrants, people whose physical safety is at risk, who feel threatened by Trump's presidency. Yeah. And, and the LGBT community is black. It is Hispanic. It, we, it is Muslim. They're immigrants. And so I think um, I'm concerned about it from, you know, for, for a range of reasons. But I think the LGBT community has often been driven by white people, often white men. LGBT justice, uh, the face of it has been. And that we haven't done a good job of standing together uh, against racism as a community. So I, I want to see this next four years uh, draw the community together in terms of racial justice. You're saying like leaders like Harvey Milk, for instance, was a white male. And you think that the LGBT community has maybe overly relied on white men. And, and you feel, are you saying you feel a sort of a dis not a dismissal a rejection by white men in this election is am i picking up on something like that no i wouldn't say i feel a rejection but i would say that uh, my main concerns have been about the racism and the racial rhetoric i've seen in this election and i think the lgbt community is going to come out fighting strong for the next four years because of some other things we can get into about the platform about trump and pitts's platform but i think in doing that We need to make sure that we're unified and also fighting and combating the racism that has a significant uh, percentage of the LGBT community at risk for different reasons. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I do have a couple other people on these reaction episodes who are dealing with race. So Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk with you about the LGBTQ issues. Mm -hmm. Um, So you mentioned the platform. 
let's talk about that platform. So this is the this is the particular platform that Trump and his administration and Paul Ryan and Mike Pence and Reince Priebus and the GOP sort of heads concocted uh, before the Republican National Convention. So what in there, like what are the stances towards uh, the LGBTQ community? Well, one of the big concerns, uh, well, there are a lot of concerns, but one is that they are pushing for conversion therapy for youth, for minors. Uh, So people who have no say in, you know, the, the, the roof over their head might be dependent on whether or not they say yes to being, you know, forced to undergo therapy to make them straight. So that I just feel like, you know, the APA, American Psychological Association has come out and denounced it. We've clearly seen the research shown that this is damaging to people and their platform can't even announce that yeah in fact uh the all the major conversion ministries in the united states have closed up shop is that right yeah exodus international the largest uh, ministry that sort of preached that gay people could become straight into the sort of pastoral conversion therapy they shut down in 2013 because the uh, president alan chambers said 99.9 percent of the people didn't change and that he thought it was damaging. And you were involved in that group when you were younger, but we're going to save that for your full episode because I don't want to, I don't want to ruin that story, but just that's a little teaser. Everyone, Julie played a central role. And when you listen to her episode, you're going to get to hear all about that. So, okay. So I understand that the platform is concerning and i understand that mike pence's history as governor of indiana is concerning for the lgbtq community but there is um there's an obvious disconnect here right which is all the times in trump's speeches where he said very plainly and clearly i am here for the homosexual community. No one loves the LGBTQ community more than me, which, you know, is a little bit of a, he was reading off of a prompter when he the said that. The gays love me. The gays love me, basically, right? But there is a sense in which he didn't have opinions about this from the conservative angle until very recently. There is a sense that, like, probably he as a person does has many gay friends and does not care mm-hmm. whether or not they're gay. Can you speak to that disparity between some of these statements he made in speeches and the platform itself. What do you think is going on there? Yeah, I think I agree with you that I don't think Trump is necessarily anti-gay himself. He was kind of like, yeah, let Caitlyn Jenner use whatever restroom she wants in Trump tower. Like he doesn't care. But the fact that he, picked Mike Pence as his running mate. And the fact that he, on his transition team, which Pence is running, has uh, people from the Family Research Council, people from the Heritage Foundation, people who have built their entire career on opposing LGBT people. He has them on his transition team. And I think what he's doing is trying to signal to his constituency, which was, you know, 81% of white evangelicals voted for him, trying to say, I'm your guy. I'm on your team. Your concerns are my concerns. And at this point, it doesn't seem like Trump really cares as much about his own agenda when it comes to these kinds of social issues. He just cares about having, you know, his his constituents support. And so if this is what it takes to get it, he's all in. Okay, so that would be that's a concern for you. Yeah, that makes sense. Has has your 
thinking changed in the last four days. Like, you know, there was sort of the shock of the night of, um, or, or is this, are we hearing sort of your cumulative thought over the last four or five days? I think I have been really angry, uh, really sad, really scared, but my fears are less about, about me personally. Um, than they are about sort of the racism and hate that I see going on. I will say I'm very concerned about, for the next few years, the non-discrimination issues at play for LGBT people because it's still totally legal to discriminate against LGBT people in most states. And the Equality Act would, would have been at play if Hillary Clinton had been elected. And so I have been coming to the terms over the last few days with the idea that um, nothing like that's going to pass any sort of non-discrimination mm-hmm. acts for LGBT people. So when it comes to, you know, the cake baker or a business owner or a hotel owner or a boss at work wanting to say, Hey, I want, I don't, I, we're not hiring you because you're gay or we don't want to serve you because you're gay. That's still totally legal. And this is going to be a real issue with trans people. I mean, I, I am very sad and very scared for my trans friends because being vilified in the midst of all of this, uh, that, you know, they're likely going to not have any sort of accommodations that, you know, the Equality Act or something like that would have provided for them. So I would say my fears and concerns have moved away from me personally, because I think, I think I'll be okay. I don't think this will affect me too much because I'm not a minor that's going to be forced to go to conversion therapy. I'm not a trans person who's going to be told, you know, that I can't go to the restroom here or I can't live here, but I'm really concerned for other people within my community. Yeah, that makes sense. I, we might have to cut this next question out and that's fine if we do, but I just want to, I want to see where this thread is going. Um, Oh gosh, I don't even really want to make you answer this. So (laughs) you can totally pass. One of the lines of argument in a lot of the pieces I've been reading and stuff I've been listening to to try and make sense of the result of this election is that a lot of people on the right feel like the left, broadly speaking, and including kind of Hollywood and celebrities and sort of like has the left has sort of leveraged all of its cultural power to try and shame the country into like rapid moral progress Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think that a lot of people on the right would see Caitlyn Jenner as not necessarily on purpose, but as like a pretty good focal point mm-hmm. for that sort of movement. Here was a world class Olympian man. Um, and then like overnight, I think people on the right feel like, oh, overnight, all of a sudden I'm just supposed to like, like if I don't say how beautiful she looks, I'm a bigot. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, Um, I think that that's I think that that is legitimately some people's kind of where they're coming from. Now, you could also Mm -hmm. say, well, Bruce Jenner becoming Caitlyn Jenner is also sort of like the most empowering version of a a trans person. Mm -hmm. You mean you could you can play it both ways, right? Yeah. But I wonder uh, I don't want to ask you to sort of defend that. Um but I would like to hear your thoughts on if you think that the tr- if that's why you think the trans community is the most at risk. Are they kind of like, are they kind of the focal point for the pushback 
on that rapid, quote unquote, moral progress? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I, I, ha- I think for one, I would say, you know, religious conservatives have been sort of shamed <laughs> through much of this. And yeah. I think it's, I don't think that holding sincere beliefs about same-sex marriage or how LGBT people should live uh, means that they're homophobic or transphobic or bigoted. So I, I avoid that language because I think that uh, isn't true of most of the people I know. At the same time, I would ask them to consider how vulnerable you know, a trans young person is and to say, okay, since, sure. since Trump was elected, uh, we saw the calls to the Trevor Project's suicide hotline for LGBT youth spike five times what they get in a normal day, the first 24 Mm. afterward, from youth. So we have to go as a Christian community, even if we don't agree with, you know, sort of where things are, where the broader culture is related to LGBT issues, we do agree that caring for vulnerable people is central to who we are as a Christian community. and, And we need to get behind protecting this trans youth the value and dignity of them. And so I think they might be, they, they, they don't necessarily have to celebrate Caitlyn Jenner and celebrate her transition. But I do think that it sure. is part of their responsibility to figure out how to honor her and to, to acknowledge the value of a human being made in the image of God. Now, does this election sort of change your mission at all moving forward? Like, can you simply advocate for a population or do you now sort of feel an additional maybe directive to mediate the conversation or were you already mediating conversation and and nothing has changed except to sort of show that it is a bigger gulf than before? You know, I, I spent the last decade probably more of like bridge building and trying to mediate and I think this election showed me how ineffective that is in many ways. You know, if 81% of white evangelicals, the community I've been most dedicated to, still looked at Donald Trump with all of his racism and bigotry and said, he's our man. And I think this showed me, I'm not going to move a lot of these people. So my initial reaction is I'm less interested in moving people who aren't interested in changing and more interested in building communities for those who are cast out, for those who were told they weren't wanted, and building faith communities that are going to represent um, more of what I see to be the the vision Jesus laid out for us. That is fascinating. I mean, I just got to say that, um, and you've you've been in your field now for much much longer than I've been doing the sort of podcast bridge building work. Um, but my reaction has been the opposite. Uh, which is just to say, and not and not not to say that your reaction should also have been my reaction, but simply that the gulf is wider than I thought, and I have maybe been missing some things, and I've sort of felt like an impetus to double down on the hmm. on the bridge building. So that's I mean I, that's just fascinating to hear your you've, you're thinking through it, and it's, it's kind of different for you, and I. Yeah, I don't have a judgment about that. I'm just, it's it's a bit of a surprise, but it makes sense. And I'll probably be processing that for a while. Yeah, this is my five days out reaction, maybe four days, I think. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if this will last because I feel like by nature, I'm wired to be empathetic and try to build bridges and bring people along. But I will say that 
That has definitely been my first reaction. Let me, uh, can I in real time, uh, <laughs> can I walk you down from that? Can I try and walk you down from that ledge with one consideration? <laughs> yes, please. Okay. I want to, cause I've been thinking a lot about this. Like enthusiasm does not show up in the polls, right? I mean, it does in sort of some of the exit polls or whatever, yeah. but that number of 81% of white evangelicals that, that there's nothing about enthusiasm in there. It's mm-hmm. possible that 30 of those 81 were pretty close to not voting for Trump and just felt they couldn't vote for Hillary, right? Let's say she were running against Cory Booker or Bernie Sanders or whatever. I mean, who knows? Like, maybe that number is really different. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I'm trying to disentangle in these days after the election is uh, what was it in people's minds actually that made them make this decision. And I'm, I'm trying to be really careful and you know, I don't look, I don't know. You, you could totally be right. I just, I want to encourage you away from the fatalism that your work hasn't done anything. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it's galvanized in the short term and opens it up in the long term. Perhaps a lot of those people are exactly who will be, be reached. Maybe it will take a year or two and they have to see like Pence crack down on this stuff. And then they, they, they hear the, the teenagers crying on 60 minutes and that's their version of watching the hoses at the sit-ins and the civil rights movement. I mean, who knows, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it could just go so many ways. This is um, true. But, uh, that, thank you for being honest about that. I, I appreciate that. And, <laughs> Yeah, I, And you have a very good point. I think you're right. It might take me a while to process and sift through my feelings, though. Sure. And I'm not, uh, of course, I, I'm not your therapist. I'm not better than <laughs> you. I don't know more than you. I just, these conversations are, are the only ones I kind of want to have right now. It's just mm-hmm. kind of, I don't know, I'm having a hard time focusing on anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so just not necessarily in the LGBT Q community, but in general, what are you most afraid of with the Trump presidency? It sort of oscillates between like nuclear war or economy crashing, which are like large scale things to a general validating violence and hate and sort of animating the the fears and the rage that, that, that people already quietly had. Yeah. I would say those are initially I'm not too concerned about like marriage equality being overturned or anything like that, because I think I don't see a case going back to the Supreme Court. And I think that conservatives have kind of moved on from that. I am concerned about there not being any movement toward non-discrimination protection for LGBT people. Sure. And then what, if anything, are you most hopeful about? Is there a silver lining here for you? You know, four days out, I have not been able to identify a silver lining, and I'm usually like a silver lining person, so that's been discouraging. Yeah. I would say one hope would be that, like I said earlier, I think you've seen a lot of LGBT people fighting for LGBT rights, often a lot of white people leading that movement. You've seen Black Lives Matter. You've seen, you know, different people fighting for different sort of areas of justice. And I would hope that this would bring more people together and open more people who are, who have maybe been sort of removed from all of this to see 
some of what's going on with like Muslim brothers and sisters or hate crimes it, it move people to, to join hands and to come together to say, how can we create communities that truly honor and value every single person? Because sometimes allowing all this to boil up to the surface sort of brings about action in ways that it might not have before. That sounds like a silver lining to me, Julie. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. <laughs> I don't know what else to call that. Yeah, maybe you're right. <laughs> that might literally be the blue sky after the cloud, not even just a silver lining <laughs> to push the metaphor. Um, okay, last question for you. What role, and you're, you're kind of talking about this, but maybe get more, more explicit. What role can the gay community play in the coming years as we transition to a Trump presidency? What, what can it look out for? To, to fight against, where can it look to find bridges between any divides between, you know, different social movements or the right and the left or like, like practically, you know, if, if a listener is in that community, like what ought that listener to be sort of on the lookout for? That's a good question. I'll speak as a gay Christian because, you know, one of the biggest culture wars that we've had going for the most of my life has been between the gays and the Christians. And yeah. I think it has situated me in a way to be able to really, truly, deeply empathize with both sides in it. And mm -hmm. I've been able to, to, to sort of like translate between the two and to say, these are the fears that Christians are feeling. These are the fears that trans people are feeling. Even if I don't completely know all of them myself, I'm very close to people who do. Or, these are the and so I think uh, there is, just being positioned in a marginalized community, it does help us to empathize more with others who are marginalized. And as a Christian, it helps me to empathize more with religious conservatives who are fearful about sort of religious liberty and those things. Yeah, so yeah. I would just say it does situate many of us to be the bridge builders <laughs> and trying to bring about more education, more understanding, and more empathy if we have the when we have this sort of energy to do it. Yes, I know this is a longer episode. Thank you for sticking with us. We have one more voice to hear from, and this is Trisha Ananiades. She was on episode six. She's a lawyer, graduated Harvard Law. She talked about institutional racism in America. And I could not go through this exercise without hearing from her. So here's what Trisha had to tell us. Okay, so Trisha, this might be asking a lot. And feel free to say that you can't do this or you can't do it yet. But can you separate out your reactions to the election, like your feelings as a mother, your feelings as a lawyer, your feelings as a woman of color? Yes. I actually have spent some time thinking about my feelings in sort of different respects. So, you know, the, the feelings that I have about it personally as a woman of color, the feelings I have about it with respect to my kids. And for me, I think that the part that impacts me most when I, when I think about my feelings about the election would be how I feel about it as a mother. I think, that, which was odd for me because I thought certainly, you know, my feelings as a person of color, that would be the most impactful to me. 
and it, it really wasn't for me. It was thinking about the, you know, the legacy for my children and, and how I want the world to be for them, um, you know, now and, you know, when, when they get older and, and what we've left for them. And for me, that was probably the most striking well, I'd love to hear a little bit about all three of those, if you don't mind, just your reaction as a mother, as a lawyer, as a woman of color. I think we'd all really love to hear that. Well, sure. As a mother, I really, I, you know, I, as I sort of mentioned, touched on, I struggled a lot in thinking about the world that will be left for for my kids. I have a little boy and a little girl. My daughter is almost four years old. My son just turned two. And when I think about the anger and the the divisiveness that sort of characterized the campaign season and knowing that a lot of the actual physical anger and the I guess, you know, maybe just disrespect of, of people who are, are different that was codified by blackening a ballot box for for Donald Trump and electing him as our new president. It worries me to think about what that means for people's attitudes as, as you know, my kids get older. You know, are we now not incentivizing, but at least co-signing that kind of behavior. So if somebody uses angry racial rhetoric with regard to anybody, you know, are we now saying, well, that's okay because, you know, you can say those kind of things and it doesn't, it's not even disqualifying from being president. And as we've seen over the last few, few days, there's been a little bit of an uptick in these kinds of, of actions of people being a little bit more bold with the things that they say or the things that they do. And so it worries me for my kids because they're at a young, impressionable age. They see and hear so much more than I realize at times. And I don't want them to internalize the things that people say. Um, A friend of mine was driving to work yesterday and someone, she was just listening to music, getting in the headspace of going to work. And somebody was driving near her and screamed at her to turn off her music, you stupid N-word. And wow. that kind of language, you know, I don't want my kids to hear something like that. I don't want my kids to feel that anger directed at them because of their skin color. How about as a lawyer? Just And you may not have super discreet thoughts on this, but I'm curious if you do. Um, just thinking through, you know, this electoral process, the transition of power, the hiring of cabinet members, uh, Supreme Court appointees, you know, just through that lens, what what have been your feelings, your reactions? Well, I have been curious as to what the reaction of the Obama administration will be to Trump's election. Because right now we're sitting on several months of Merrick Garland being in limbo, not even receiving an up or down vote by the Senate to be confirmed or not as a Supreme Court justice. We have a backlog of probably hundreds of district court judges who, again, cannot get a vote by the Senate. 
And I've been curious to know how the Obama administration will react now that he knows that Hillary Clinton will not be his, his successor and will not have the time to push these people through. So I am curious to see what happens over the course of the next, you know, two months or so until President-elect Trump is sworn in. And I have read something recently, and I do agree with it, that argues that President Obama should merely just appoint Judge Garland to the Supreme Court. And that the Senate, by not acting in how many ever months it's been, has effectively waived their constitutional right to advise and consent. And that President Obama merely just simply appointing Judge Garland is an effective check on a recalcitrant Congress. I thought that was interesting. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly there would be litigation over it. But if our system is meant to be a system of checks and balances, and one of the checks on a president with respect to the Supreme Court is that Congress has the ability to advise and consent, where is the other side? Where is the check on the Congress to make sure that they're doing their job? And I think that that has been a, a frustration of the American people for a long time, which is why Congress has such a terrible approval rating and why... I think it would be effective for President Obama before he leaves office to just appoint Judge Garland anyway. And selfishly from a person who maybe come who come definitely comes from a more left leaning perspective, would help mitigate some of the what I would perceive as damage to the Supreme Court. Um, would help preserve some of the rights that the Supreme Court has already guaranteed since uh, President-elect Trump has already made it clear that he plans to at least try to roll back some of the rights already already established by the court. What do we all need to be vigilant about when it comes to ensuring that those in positions of less power in America don't have their rights or their prospects further trampled in the next four years? I think that, to be to be frank, I think that the next couple of years at least will be will be possibly more difficult. I think that if people are truly interested in making sure that we are upholding the rights of all citizens in this country and you want to be sure that, you know, maybe maybe President elect Trump made some statements during his campaign that um, you think went a little far. And maybe, you know, maybe you voted for him, but don't agree with as far as he went on on some other matters. I think it, number one, is beholden on all of us to say something when we see or hear something happen. So if there was a situation, you know, when I talked about what happened to my friend yesterday, if there was somebody there who maybe is in a position of more social power, to say something to that person, you know, that's not right. You don't talk that way to other people. You know, if you go to holidays and you hear your uncle or your aunt or your cousin or someone saying things that you just know are really not okay, take that moment to call the person out. And it doesn't have to be in a mean way. and It doesn't have to be in an aggressive way. But I think it's all it's incumbent on all of us to really say something 
I think that many of us who live in coastal areas or more typically progressive or liberal areas, a lot of people did not understand the ways in which people in other areas felt forgotten about or the ways that they felt that Donald Trump really gave them a voice. And now that that's sort of out in the open, I hope that people take the opportunities to try to educate other people, because I do think people are going to be becoming more, more explicit, more bold with the things that they're saying. And it's incumbent on all of us to sort of check those people in those moments and help educate them. And, you know, hopefully at least we can sort of calm down a lot of the peer-to-peer social issues that have been popping up the last several days. And, you know, with respect to any arguments from government, any anything that we see that's happening that we don't like, you know, the midterm elections, the next set of elections are only two years away. And so to the extent that people are not representing your interests in government, become active, get active in your local government get active in political campaigns. You don't have to run yourself if that's not something you're interested in, but, you know, make sure that you, your voice is heard, that you're seen, that people know that you care and start fighting for those things. For myself, I do plan to get more involved in local government. I do plan to get involved in midterm elections because I think that those things are important. And if people, whether they voted for him or not, see that our then president Trump isn't working towards the kinds of things that they think are important for this country, then it's important that we all understand that there are, again, those checks and balances. One of the checks to presidential power is congressional power. So work to make sure that the Congress people who are in place will help mitigate some of the things that you don't like are happening. Yeah, that's really good. It's a good reminder that the midterms are in two years, and perhaps this will be the first time where Democrats are overrepresented in midterm elections, whereas in the past they tend to be underrepresented. And really, a lot of that's going to have to do with what Trump and the GOP government enact in those two years. Right. That's right. And I think that you know, if people aren't sure what's going to happen, I know there was a lot of talk in terms of people saying, well, we don't really know what priorities would be for President Trump, because, of course, people make campaign promises all the time. And this is not just saying anything about Donald Trump, but certainly anybody who really runs for president or runs for political office. It's sort of like, you know, a high school election where they promise pizza for lunch every day and, you know, two hour recess. That's a great campaign promise. But then people sort of focus in on the realities of the office once they get in there. And for people who aren't sure what his priorities would be, um, I believe it was yesterday, or at least in the last few days, that he published a statement of what he plans to do, what he plans to prioritize in the first 100 days. So that should give people a pretty good idea of what will be coming down the pike. And to the extent that you agree with it, then great. You, ha- you already know where the direction of the country is headed to the extent that you don't agree with some or all of his stated goals, you know, contact your local Congress people, contact the House of Reps, contact your senators, let them know that this does not represent something that you are interested in. And I promise you that your politicians will listen. And if you're not getting traction with your federal 
representatives, your congresspeople, your senators, contact your state assembly members or state senators, and they often have working relationships with a federal um, representatives and, you know, might be able to get your voice heard that way. What are you most hopeful about going forward? Is there anything that this has revealed, you know, brought to the light? Um, any silver linings for you? One thing that I can say is a silver lining is that at least this election has given people a chance to see truly how far we still need to go as a country with respect to race relations. I don't think that many people truly understood the fact that things have been so troubling in this country. You know, I heard from a great number of people after 2008 and then again after 2012 that race isn't a problem in America anymore because we have a black president or we've elected this same person twice. So there's no such thing as racism anymore. And I think that over the course of the last several months during the election season and whatnot, I think people have truly begun to understand that that's just not true. And it's opened these people's eyes. It's helped them to be more aware. And, you know, hopefully it means that we'll be able to try to heal some of the divisions that come from having you know, the systemic racism, not even just individualized racism. So I'm, I'm hopeful in that respect that at least eyes open means that we're all more aware and we can help um, try, try to make these things better, at least as we go forward. Huge thank you to everyone who came on and shared with us what they're thinking through, um, how they're feeling about all of this. I'm really excited for next week because we will get uh, a actual voice from the right, um, a compassionate and open Trump supporter that I've become friends with on Facebook named Ian, and I'm grateful for him. We're also going to hear from a few other people, uh, past guests of the pod and future. In the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter, Dan K-O-C-H. You can check out show notes at depolarizedpodcast.com. Please join the Facebook discussion group. It's called Depolarized Podcast Discussion Group. It has been an amazing community. People are going there and sharing their fears, their questions, and it has been so awesome to see that community start to grow. If you have any questions for me or the guests, you can submit them there. You can email me depolarizedpodcast at gmail.com. And next week, like I said, we're going to have one more of these episodes of reactions to the election as we process this huge event that we have witnessed. Some have been calling it the greatest political surprise of our lifetime. Some of these people are in their fifties and sixties. So we're going to process it for a while and then we're going to figure out what to do going forward. And once Trump actually takes office, we're going to keep a really close eye on what he does and the tenor that he sets for our country. So grateful for you guys as listeners. Thank you for continuing to support and listen and share it with friends. And we'll talk next week.